In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Abba, Father. Abba, Father. You have revealed that you are love. That together with the Son in the Holy Spirit, that you are a mystery of love an eternal communion of love. And we are made in the likeness of this image. Father, we pray that we might not just come to know this love intellectually, but that we might know it personally in a relationship with you and that we might find in this love everything that our hearts most deeply seek and most need. And we make our prayer through the holy and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I want to welcome all of you here today as we begin uh, this series on agape love. And the importance about being specific about the word love is extremely important. Whenever Jesus or St. Paul or St. John or St. Peter use the word love in the New Testament, 98% of the time they are using the word agape. This is important because in the time of Christ, the languages that were being used had words for different kinds of love. They had, for example, a beautiful word for friendship, the love between friends. They had another word to describe the intimate love between spouses. They also had a word to describe family affection that family affection between parents and children, children and parents, and between siblings. We're talking about agape love. And there, there are shades of these other kinds of love in agape, and the purpose of redemption is to bring agape into these three uh, common forms of human relationships, human love. The way the scriptures describe agape, there are different words that help us. It's a love that is faithful forever. Another word that is used is, it's a love that is everlasting. It is an unconditional love. It is a free love, purely gratuitous, undeserved. It is an other-centered love. It is a sacrificial love. It is a merciful love. And it's a love that is even willing to go to death. This is agape love that we'll be talking about in this conference, and the the other two. So we all know this verse, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then in that same gospel, later on in chapter 15, Jesus says at the Last Supper, As the Father loves me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So why do we start this three-part series 
with a conference specifically on receiving this love. Because everything starts with God, not with ourselves. We don't start with our fallen, limited, imperfect human condition. If we were to start with that and measure love from that angle, we would fall short and everything else would be kittywampus. We start always with God. John sums up the mystery of God when he says in that first letter, God is love. And God's love, therefore, is always first. And so the only way that you and I can understand God and understand ourselves as made in God's image and likeness is only in the light of God's love that always precedes us. What's beautiful is that even before we were conceived in the womb, we were held in God's mind as objects of love. One of my favorite verses from the prophet Jeremiah, perhaps yours as well. Remember this line. First chapter, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And of course, God can only know in love. He can only regard us in love. This is why Pope Benedict XVI, when he was inaugurated uh, or installed as Pope after he was elected, in his homily he said, and he was very careful to state this, we are not some casual and meaningless product of evolution. Each of us is the result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed, wanted. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. Let's just take a moment to soak that in. Each of us is the result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed. Each of us is wanted. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. To be made in God's image, which sets us apart from all the other creatures, God has created means that God's creative design and purpose on your life and mine is not only that we would be made in love, but that we would be made to know it, to know it, to be aware of it, and to freely receive it as a pure gift and to respond with love in return. Another way of saying this is that you and I are made for relationship. We are made by love for love. We are made by love for love. Now a squirrel and other creatures were made by love but they don't know it. The squirrel's just busy gathering nuts. He's not aware of God. He's not aware of God's love. He's not intentionally receiving it and then responding to it. The squirrel's just being a squirrel. We're very different. We can actually know God's love. We can freely receive it, which is what God desires, and 
freely respond to it. There's that beautiful Psalm 139. I praise you, O Lord. Why? For I am wonderfully made. We are so amazing. The wonder of our being. Thomas Merton tried to express this as well in his book, The Seeds of Contemplation. He puts it this way. To say that I am made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence. For God is love. Love, therefore, is my true identity. Selflessness is my true self. Love is my true character. In fact, love is my name. <laughs> this is amazing. Let's just soak that in a minute. Love is my true identity. Selflessness is my true self. Love is my true character. Love is my name. God's love, then, is the ground and foundation of our being, the source and origin of our existence. Your life and my life is a gift. It's a pure gift, freely given to us in love at every single moment, with every single breath. It's like God saying over us, at every moment, I love you. Receive the gift of life. Every one of us can say at any moment, Abba, Father, you love life into me. You love yourself into me. You love your love into me. You love your beauty, your glory, your goodness your light into me. You give yourself completely to me. You love life into me. Any one of us could say that at every single moment. And it's true. Your life and my life is a gift from another. And God is giving it to you right now. He's giving it to you right now. He's giving it to you right now. And our response, therefore, can only be a response. God's love is always first, always taking initiative. And we respond. Given this revealed truth, you would think that this love would be ever-present in our conscious awareness, that it would be foremost in our thoughts. It will be in the core of our desires, thoughts, and feelings. But, and here's the big but, given our fallen human condition, the reality of sin and its effects, while this indeed is the most beautiful, wonderful, necessary truth, it is the one we most struggle with. It is the one reality, the one truth, where we need the most convincing. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? This is why St. John Paul II, shortly after he was installed as Pope, he wrote his first encyclical letter, The Redeemer of Man. Paragraph 10, very early on in that work, 
he's careful to say the reason why he's writing this letter because of a foundational experience of what he encounters with every single person. He says, man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible to himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him. If he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. This is true of every single one of us and of every human being we know and encounter. He goes on to say, this is why Christ the Redeemer is the one who fully reveals us to ourselves. In Christ we find again our greatness, our value, our dignity that belongs to our humanity. And then he goes on to say, anyone who wishes to thoroughly understand themselves and not just in accordance with immediate, partial, and often superficial and illusory standards by which the world measures our life and existence, we must with all our unrest, uncertainty, our weakness and sinfulness, even with our life and death, draw near to Christ and enter into Christ with our full self. Nothing held back. Fully enter into Christ. Of course, who fully enters into us in order to be created anew and fully discover who we really are and not what we've become after the fall and because of sin. This is why we start with Jesus. If Jesus is the one who reveals you and I to ourselves and therefore reveals what grace is trying to accomplish, we must start with Jesus. He is the perfect human being. And what does Jesus highlight about himself in the Gospels? Have you noticed? And this is so clear in the Gospel of John. What does he highlight? His relationship with his Father. He cannot stop talking about his Father. And what then does he highlight about this relationship he has with the Father? that he's loved. And he has all kinds of ways of saying it. The father loves the son, he'll say. And he says, this is the reason for everything else that the father gives him and does for him. And then he says again, as the father loves me. And he says this so matter-of-factly, so simply, as something that is just so obvious and should be obvious to us. It's clear that this love of the Father is the foundation of who He is. It's the source of His confidence. It's the source of His security, His complete trust of the Father in absolutely everything. He's not distracted or overwhelmed with self-concern. Why? Because the Father loves him. It's the source of his strength, of his complete freedom toward every single person and every created thing. 
The Father loves me. Another way to put it, I am the one whom the Father loves. Period. That's what Jesus knows. That is his consciousness. In Jesus, there there is a self-consciousness, but it's a self-consciousness of being loved by the Father. What takes up his conscience more than anything is the Father. He's Father conscious and conscious of being loved by this Father. And notice that this is the one thing that the Father highlights when his voice is heard. And there's only three times in the gospel where the Father allows his voice to be heard. Three times. And two of them, what does the Father say about Jesus? You are my beloved. (laughs) The Father could have said a number of things. And yet the one thing he's careful to say that is more important than anything, is I love you. You are beloved. And I delight and take pleasure in you. This bestowal of belovedness was given to us in baptism, but it gets lost. And sometimes it never is known until later in life. And then Jesus says, as the Father loves me, so I also love you. Jesus loves us out of the love he's receiving from the Father. Even for Jesus, because he becomes one of us, For him, receiving love is first. And then he gives out of the love he receives from the Father. As the Father loves me, so I also love you. And then he says, abide in my love. It is so clear that Jesus wants us to know this love because the Father wants us to know this love. And this is why the Father sends the Son to reveal this love. God so loved the world. God so loved you and me that he sends his love through Jesus who makes that love visible and incarnate. As the Father loves me, so I have loved you. Coming to know the Father's love through Jesus, this is redemption. Knowing ourselves as loved as Jesus knew himself as loved. This is what Jesus reveals about us and what we are to know. We see this as the core truth that follows from St. Paul's conversion with his encounter with Christ. And he sums it up so beautifully in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 2. He says, I still live my human life, but it is so different. It is now a life of faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. For Paul, this was constantly in his awareness. This powerful symbol, this Christian symbol of the greatest love the world has ever known. This is always in Paul's mind. Like us, he still lives his human life 
but it has become a life of faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The way that St. John puts it in his first letter, by this we have come to know God's love for us in that he laid down his life for us. So simple. And yet this is the foundation of our being and our very existence, certainly as Christians. This now becomes for Paul the overarching revelation that he wants all Christian converts to know. And he expresses it beautifully in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3. Now being rooted and grounded in love, that you may have power to comprehend with all the saints, all those Christians that are converting to Christ, what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of Christ's love, which surpasses all knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is Paul's mission, to make this love known. And what I find most striking is the same evidence for this life-giving, life-changing truth in the life of St. John. After spending three years following Jesus, living closely and intimately with the Father's love revealed through Jesus, and as you and I can remember, John was the one who put his head on the heart of Jesus at the Last Supper, John is the one standing with Mary at the foot of the cross, witnessing this love pouring out of Jesus from the cross. That when John is inspired to write his gospel years later, how does he refer to himself? As the one whom Jesus loves. Notice the transformation. Earlier I said, Jesus is the one whom the Father loves. That was his consciousness. And now John, allowing himself to be transformed by receiving this love from Jesus, the Father's love through Jesus, he comes to know himself in a new way. I am the one whom Jesus loves, period. Boy, that would put a, a skip in our step. If that was the first thing I thought of every morning when waking up, I am the one whom Jesus loves. A beautiful image I like is when I'm getting out of bed to imagine I'm coming up out of the water with Jesus in the Jordan River, and I'm hearing the, the Father's voice say anew, you are my beloved, and just letting it wash over me before I begin the day. How different our day would be if that's how we started. You see, prayer is not first things we say to God. God has something he wants to say first. He has a love he wants to give first. And this is why our first posture in prayer is receptivity, listening, openness. <laughs> like my dear friend, uh, my brother priest in Michigan, Father Prentice, he used this image once of a sponge. He says, God, let me be a sponge before you today, let me soak up all the love that you want to give me and then help me wring it out on others. 
who just keeps soaking me with it just until I'm drenched. Remember, Merton said, love is my true identity. Love is my name. Jesus knew this. John knew this. But they're not the only ones. We come to find out when we read the Gospel of John, there are others. Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Remember the message that they sent to Jesus when Lazarus was sick? What did the message say? So simple. He whom you love is sick. And the highlight is on the love. He whom you love is sick. And then it's followed by saying, and Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Because of the time they spent with Jesus, they came to know the same thing. This is the intention for John's gospel, that everyone who reads this gospel and enters into Christ would come to know themselves in the same light. That they would, they would draw the same conclusion. This is why prayer is so important. And this was the key to the life of Saint Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And so moving are the words that she left her sisters in the community shortly before she died. Something was weighing on her heart, and it was this. I worry that some of you still have not really met Jesus. One to one. You and Jesus alone we may spend time in chapel, but have you seen with your eyes, the eyes of your soul, how Jesus looks at you with love? And maybe if I would just put that book down and not be racing through it that I brought with me to chapel, maybe if I would just dare to put that book down, I might know this. If I would just be still, do you really know the living Jesus? Not from books, but from being with him in your heart. Ask for this grace. He is longing to give it to you. Never give up this daily intimate contact with Jesus as the real living person. How can we last even one day without hearing Jesus say, I love you, impossible. Our soul needs this as much as the body needs air to breathe. If this is not happening, prayer is dead. Meditation is only thinking. Jesus wants each of you to hear him speaking in the silence of your hearts. Prayer, the absolute necessity of that time of stillness and receptivity before God. God has left us a legacy of this love in the sacred scriptures. He continually shows us this love through the sacraments, and the many gifts of the Spirit that he has entrusted to the church and continually gives to his faithful. And then there are the daily signs of his love and presence, the effects of his grace in the present moment, which we have to learn how to recognize and become aware of. How do we come to know this love and abide in it? Well, the simple answer that Scripture gives 
is through the gift of faith. A living faith that opens a person to the eternal living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and receives what God has revealed and receives it in faith anew each and every day. The love that is newly expressed at each moment. If you and I were to ask, what is God doing right now? He's loving. God is love, and God can only, therefore, love. We can never look at our watch and say, well, earlier today there was about five minutes where God took a break, you know, where, God, where the flow of love just kind of stopped. We can never say that about God. I can always be certain if I ask the question, God, what are you doing? I'm loving you. The problem is usually on our end in the lack of receptivity and awareness. This is why we must now deal with the challenges to believing and receiving this love. This first part I want to call lies, false expectations, and misconceptions. We can easily put forward the argument, you know, God, I would love to believe this, but I feel myself so imperfect. There are days where it is so clear what a sinner that I am, how often I fail to follow Jesus, to love you and love my neighbor. Peter felt this when Jesus called him. Lord, he he pulled back. Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus had to assure him. Jesus had to tell him not to be afraid. I want to deal or address the common feeling of unworthiness. This feeling and knowing ourselves as unworthy of love and of grace because of our sins. Remember that line in the Mass that is taken from that encounter of Jesus with a centurion, that line that we say together, when the host is elevated shortly before communion, we say, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. I remember a conversation with Dr. Bob Schuchs, and he said, there is a truth-based shame and unworthiness but also a lie-based shame and unworthiness. The former is based on faith. The latter is not. With holy, truth-based unworthiness, we can say, yes, it is true that I am undeserving and that I am unworthy but I am still open to God's mercy. I'm still believing in God's love and able to receive his amazing grace freely given to me. With unholy, lie-based unworthiness, it goes something like this. Because I am unworthy, I do not believe that God loves me or that he can love me. And therefore, a lie closes my heart and this lie, which is not faith, becomes a barrier and and prevents me from receiving God's merciful love. This is why when we recognize the difference and lies like this, 
Scripture invites us to exercise our baptismal grace and renounce them and replace them with the truth of faith. When you leave today, I have a sheet of just a few common lies that touch upon this that you can take with you and pray with to see if they don't resonate with your life. The first one is this lie-based unworthiness. The truth is, God does not love me because I am worthy. God loves me because he is God and because he is mercy. And it is through God's love, through Jesus, that makes us worthy. A merciful love that cleanses us from sin and recreates us anew, filling us with God's own spirit. There's this beautiful line of Paul from Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, to the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit he pours out richly upon us through Christ, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a few other examples on that sheet. Faith. There are often misconceptions and false expectations regarding faith. The question, does God love me? But I don't feel it. God, my life is hard. There is suffering all around me. Does God love me? Here's, we ha- here's where we have to be careful about where we start and how we understand faith. With faith, we start with God. And therefore, what God reveals, not how I feel, not my limited understanding, which often is very imperfect and partial. I start with what God has revealed, and I accept that as true, not because I feel it, and not because I understand it. It is true because God reveals it. And thank God, I cannot limit, confine, and reduce God to a feeling that comes and goes, unpredictable. Can you imagine if God's love was dependent upon and based on how I feel. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Ay, ay, ay. It'd be like a roller coaster. I'd want to get off. Or if God was, if we expected God to fit our concepts, if God's love is God's love, and God is the source of it, and God is greater than the whole created world and infinitely transcends this world, even though he's intimately present in it, it's possible that God's love is so much more wonderful and amazing than you and I could ever imagine. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, the mind has not been able to conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. 
the height, the depth, the breadth, the greatness. And what does Paul add? Which is beyond knowledge. I thank God that God's love does not fit into my concepts. Otherwise, it wouldn't be God's love. I'm glad that God's love is not determined by a feeling. Otherwise, it would not be God's love. But here's where we need faith. Because God's love often comes to us in ways that we do not expect. Especially when that love is painful. When we are walking through the desert, when we are experiencing darkness, when we are experiencing the purification of the Holy Spirit, the pruning of the Heavenly Father, when we are invited to follow Jesus by picking up our cross and denying ourselves, die to ourselves, we can say to God, it doesn't feel like love. But remember, love is to will the good of the other. What is the greatest good that God could will for you and I? Salvation. And therefore, is it possible that God knows more about salvation than you and I? We smile. But isn't it something that we have the itch to often give God some suggestions? How much we would love to give God some advice. We'd like to exchange this cross for this one. We'd like to skip over the cross and just dive into Easter. God loves us as God loves us in the way that he knows we need to be loved and always with that greatest good in mind, our salvation. And therefore, as a good father, a good parent, he's willing to do things that can be painful in order that we might reach the goal. It is so important. Here's where I appreciate the gift of the scriptures and the writings of many saints and uh, mystics on the interior life who can help us understand the ways of God because they have walked through our deserts. They have experienced our darkness. They too have felt those moments of abandonment when it feels like God is not answering our prayers. And they talk about this in their writings so that when we go through the same thing, we can understand how God is loving us and not think that God is rejecting us that he has abandoned us, that God is not a good father, that God does not know what he is doing. There's this prayer that you've heard before, I'm sure. It's a beautiful example, very fitting for this moment. I ask God for strength that I might achieve, but I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things, but I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches and the things of this world that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of others. I was given weakness that I might feel deeply the need of God. I ask for all things that I might enjoy life, 
but I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, all my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all people most richly blessed. (laughs) My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. My ways are not yours. And so maybe we have to conform to God's ways. We have to learn his ways. We have to learn his language. Especially when his favorite language is silence. And the common way he is present with us is concealment. He's a mysterious God. So close, intimate, and near, but often loving and acting in ways that do not conform to our expectations. Another challenge, distractions. How timely that a cell phone just went off. Notice in our culture today the number of things that offer us diversions and distractions. It's endless, especially just with the social media, with TV, computers, cell phones, iPads, Peapods. We have to deal with these things in order that we may use them in a way that does not take away the the possibilities for intimacy with God. How many of us, and I would count myself in the number, have said, boy, I just wasted several hours on the computer or looking at my cell phone. And we all feel this afterwards. Boy, I could have used that time much better. Distractions take us out of this posture of receptivity. And now I'm caught up and into the clamor of voices and all the things that are vying for our attention to pull our minds and our hearts in another direction. And no wonder so many people do not know the love of God because they do not put themselves in a posture to live in awareness of God and to be able to recognize what he is doing but there's going on from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, turning on the radio, having the TV on in the background. Whenever there's, a, whenever there's a free time, get out the cell phone. There's no space for God to say, I love you. You are my beloved. You are precious. For us to be aware of something that God just did and it got lost. God is loving every moment of the day. Why don't we see it? Why aren't we hearing the whispers of his love? Distractions, diversions, noise, noise, noise. We have to be a counter-witness which takes courage, humility, and strength. I have none of these, but Jesus does. And Jesus will give them to any one of us to be this counter-witness. Be still. Be still and know that I am God. Doubts. And especially doubts concerning God's love and mercy. 
And here's where the devil, this is one of the devil's playgrounds. The devil has many playgrounds. One of them is doubt. And if those doubts are not dealt with, he wants to lead us from doubt to disbelief. And so this is why it's so important that when, I, when I'm aware of a doubt, that I turn it to God and turn the doubt into a prayer of renewed faith and surrender. Otherwise, the devil's going to play with me and beat me around. And where we often experience doubts is with God's mercy. For those of you who have read the diary of Faustina, of St. Faustina, what is the one thing that Jesus reveals to her that is the source of his greatest sadness? It's not sin. It's the failure to trust in his mercy. The failure to trust in his mercy gives greater sadness to Jesus. This is the reason for Jesus giving those three parables of mercy in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. The lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. Because he knew that we would struggle with believing in God's mercy. There's this beautiful poem from St. John of the Cross. I remember the first time I, I found this. I just wanted to go off and be alone for several hours after I read this. Here's, here's what St. John of the Cross says in this poem. A lone young shepherd lived in pain, withdrawn from pleasure and contentment, his thoughts fixed on a shepherd girl, his heart an open wound with love. He weeps, but not from the wound of love, there is no pain in such affliction. Even though the heart is pierced, he weeps in knowing he's been forgotten. That one thought, his shining one, has forgotten him. Is such great pain that he bows to brutal handling in a foreign land, his heart an open wound of love. The shepherd says, I pity the one who draws herself back from my love and does not seek the joy of my presence, though my heart is an open wound with love for her. After a long time, he climbed a tree and spreading his shining arms and hung by them and died, his heart an open wound with love. Let's just soak that in for a minute. All of Scripture is trying to reveal this, especially the New Testament is trying to reveal this one thing. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He was called, and this was an accusation hurled at him, the friend of sinners. He loved it. Because that's who he is. For a person who is convinced of their own self-righteousness, Jesus did not come for them. Jesus said precisely, I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have came to call sinners. And what is the word? Remember that, that line in, in the Mass? Only say the word 
and my soul shall be healed. And there are many words from the mouth of Christ that are healing, like, neither do I condemn you. That woman who was caught in adultery, they were going to stone her. They all left, (laughs) dropping their stones. No one condemned her because each of them realized they too are sinners. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. Or to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Such healing words. Again, it's important that we turn these doubts into a new act of faith. Another challenge is past hurts and wounds. As I said earlier, this love that God reveals is to be known by us and from a, and as a little child. That's okay. But here's where it gets lost. There are so many parents and significant people in our life that do not know that they are called to mediate this love. The first way that a child comes to know God is through the parent's love. But because, like ourselves, many of our parents are very wounded, like us, they are sinners and broken. This love is not often communicated in the way that God has called them to give. And so we are often hurt by the very ones with whom we live. We are wounded. And in my years of ministry, and I would count myself among them, there are many people who come into their adult life with a wounded image of God. I was doing this for years, not knowing it, it it often is subconscious, I was projecting onto God my broken images and experiences of fatherhood and motherhood in my human experience. And I was thinking God was the same way. And we can do the same thing. There's many adults who have broken images of God that need to be healed. Is God a distant father, checked out, emotionally distant, doesn't care about me? Is that who God is? I thought he was. Is God like an angry parent, over-expecting? I thought he was. I needed to have that healed over time. And there are many other wounds, wounds of rejection, betrayal, abandonment, identity wounds, and so forth. So I just want to give you an example of a healing prayer that we might use in a situation where someone has been wounded in their childhood and is struggling to believe and receive God's love. But when we're hurt and wounded, what happens? Out of self-protection, we put up walls and barriers that keep God out. We need God so much, but we cannot redeem our own wounds. We can't heal ourselves. Only Jesus can do this. Here's an example. Now, my sister's name is Susan. We call her Sue. And I'm just going to, let's just pretend as an example here uh, that I'm praying with Sue about her father. Jesus, let Sue know your protective presence guarding and guiding her during the early years of her life. Allow her to feel the strong arms of a father's love surrounding her. If her own father was unable to show affection, if her father was often away, overly strict, or absent altogether, 
If she has lacked a father's love for any other reason, I ask you now through your tender mercy to fill in those parts of her life with that strong and tender love that only a father can give. When she needed to have those strong arms around her and a daddy to love her, when she needed a father's advice and the security of his love, and these were missing, assure her now, Father, of your unfailing love that has never abandoned her, of your watchful care of her when she was not aware of it and unable to receive it. Take her, Lord, now into your loving embrace so that the strength and tenderness and warmth of your embrace would heal her. We thank you, Jesus, for this gift. If someone came to the confessional and confessed sin, that indicated to me that they were struggling to believe in love, it would be wrong of me to say to this person, you just got to try harder. Wouldn't that be awful? Come on, you just got to try harder. Uh-uh. This person needs healing. Many times the sins they're confessing are compensation sins, compensating for the pain and the hurt within. What they need is healing. They not only need Jesus to forgive their sins, they need Jesus to heal them of their wounds. And this leads to the final challenge, unconfessed sin. This too can become a barrier, especially when it's serious sin that becomes habitual, those sins that can become addictive. This is why we have the season of penance, which is not punishment, by the way. Penance is about making space. God wants to fill us with his love. But if we are filled with ourselves, with our fallen selves, and not dealing with major areas of sin, there's no space. A good example of this is with the sin of pride. <laughs> we all know and have experienced people where pride has dominated their life. And we have expressions like, boy, are they full of themselves, right? Or they're full of hot air, right? We've said this about people. We would not judge them, right? Right? <laughs> if we have, Jesus have mercy. This is why I like Augustine's description of conversion as getting the wind knocked out of us getting that pride just kind of knocked out of us so that humility can take its place. And now there is space. That's what God is doing through Lent. He's making space. And he wants all the space for him. Make space for me, he says. Let me help you move things out of the way so that I can reveal even more my love, and my mercy. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our celebration is ended. Go in peace. God bless your day.